The scripture reading tonight will be from Psalms chapter 33, verse 12. Psalms chapter 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for the privilege that we've had to sing these beautiful songs, to approach the throne of God in prayer, also to read from his word. We're going to be looking tonight at what the wise man said in the long ago in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, where he said, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach unto any people. And then the psalmist, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In our study this morning, we talked about the problems that our nation is experiencing and I think that the facts are in. And all of us would agree that as a nation of people, we have, we have a lot of very grave and serious problems confronting our nation. And so tonight, we want to talk about the future of our nation. I have some excerpts that I'd like to read for you tonight as we study together. But one of the things that I want us to do is to think for just a few moments about the future of our nation because all of us have a vested interest in the future of America. We are American citizens and we have been extremely blessed in this nation and all of us as American citizens are grateful to Almighty God for the bountiful blessings that He has so richly bestowed upon us. We're thankful for the freedoms that we have enjoyed. I'm convinced that America is a country like no other. And I'm grateful to live in this country. I'm thankful to, to call America home. But I also realize that the foundation of our nation is not what it used to be. That there have been any number of changes that have swept our country in recent years. There was a statement made by Ann Landers some years ago in which she said, let's face it. America is sick. I think that's an interesting statement from a secular writer and thinker. To chronicle the fact that America as we know it is sick. And in many respects, I think all of us would agree with that assessment. What we want to do tonight is think about the future of our nation. First of all, I want us to think about the peril that is before us. And then we're going to talk about the prescription because I want us to leave here in a positive way thinking about what can be done and what should be done to get our nation back on track. And I really believe that with God's help and as God's people, we can make a change in the direction, the course of our nation. So tonight... Let's think for just a few moments, a few moments about the future of our nation. Now, we looked at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, where Solomon said, righteousness exalts a nation. And we all agree with that. But if righteousness exalts a nation, the flip side of that is this, sin will bring it down. In short, Sin will destroy a nation of people. 
One of the things that maybe all of us would do well to consider in light of the future of America is the fact that God has a standard by which he judges nations. And in the past, when they have reached a certain level of degradation, he has judged them. I want to cite for you some examples. First of all, I would call your attention to Genesis chapter 15. In verse 16, we have God in the long ago speaking to Abraham. Now, Abraham, as you know, was called the friend of God. And Abraham was the man through whom the Hebrew nation arose. Ultimately, Abraham and through his seed, the Christ would emerge. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God spoke in the long ago of the Amorites. And he said, their iniquity is not yet full or complete. I think the inference from that is that when they reached a certain measure of degradation or iniquity, he would then judge them. They were the original inhabitants of the land of Palestine, and ultimately they were judged. And God speaks of that in Genesis, the 15th chapter. Another example that I would call your attention to would be the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you remember back in Genesis chapter 18, God again speaking to Abraham. And in this context, Abraham literally barters with God for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God said, based on this bartering system that Abraham implemented, that if ten righteous people could be found within the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he would not destroy it. But in Genesis 18, verse 20, God said, speaking of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that their cry was great. And their sin, he said, is very grievous. Now, what was the sin of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we know it, it was the sin of homosexuality. There is a passage in the New Testament that I think helps to amplify what occurred during the days of Abraham and Lot. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 2 at about verse 5. There the apostle Peter said, speaking of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God condemned them with an overthrow. And then he said, he made them an example to all who would live ungodly. What did God do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? He destroyed them. He rained fire and brimstone upon them. Now, you remember what Moses recorded in Genesis 18? Their sin was very what? Very grievous. God viewed what was going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and apparently their level of degradation reached a certain point, and thus he acted in judgment upon them. Let me give you another example. Look at the city of Nineveh. In the book of Jonah, we read about God calling upon a man by the name of Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. And God said in verse 2 of Jonah chapter 1, their wickedness is great. Now, when we look at the city of Nineveh, and when we look at the Ninevite people as a whole, we know that they were a ruthless, cruel 
ungodly group of people. That really characterized them in a nutshell. And God sent Jonah. Jonah initially resisted God's encouragement to go to the city and to proclaim against, against it. But he later relented and went to the city and proclaimed a message of repentance to those people. And so in chapter 3, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. And the Bible tells us they had 40 days to literally get their act together because God said, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. The Ninevite people as a whole, that is the city of Nineveh, they were going to be plucked. They were going to be pummeled. They were going to be destroyed. God was going to take them out. Now, because the city of Nineveh repented and turned back to God, he relented and thus spared the city. Historically speaking, we find that some 150 years later, God later destroyed the city of Nineveh, Nahum the prophet. You can read about his exploits in Nahum chapter 1, God talks about the fact that he's going to bring judgment upon the Ninevite people. And that occurred some 150 years after the preaching efforts of Jonah the prophet. A fourth example that I would cite would be the northern kingdom of Israel. Now you can read the historical account of the days of the Israelite people going all the way back to the time of the judges. The time of the judges was later followed by the kings. Initially, there were, well, initially there was what was called the United Kingdom. Saul was the first king over the United Kingdom. He was later followed by David. David, as you know, was followed by his son, Solomon. When Solomon died, we read of two kings being installed. Rehoboam to the south, that is in the southern kingdom, Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, if you go back and look at history, you'll find that each and every king in the northern kingdom was wicked and corrupt. And so in 2 Kings, we find God taking the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity. As a matter of fact, God swept the northern kingdom away into captivity in about 722, 721 B.C., and they never returned again. Now, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he was the one that set up two golden calves for the people to worship, one in Dan, one in Bethel. And really, he set the tone for the spirituality of the northern kingdom. And to just put it very bluntly, they were a wicked, idolatrous, ungodly group of people. And... Sadly, they simply mirrored those who functioned as kings on their behalf. But then later in history, we find God rendering judgment on the southern kingdom, that is, on Judah itself. Now, God would ultimately spare a remnant of people because he needed a remnant to bring the Christ into the world. But when God spoke of, of taking the, the southern kingdom into Babylonian captivity, he talked about the events that would occur. And let me just read for you what is said in 2 Kings chapter 21. In 2 Kings chapter 21, beginning in verse 10, here's what God said concerning the southern kingdom, that is, Judah. The Lord spoke by his prophets 
or by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. You remember we talked about the Amorites and how God had said in the long ago, when their iniquity reached a certain period of time, he would do what? He would judge them. Well, ultimately, that's what's occurring in, in uh, the southern kingdom. And so, picking up in verse 11, he said, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. Why? Because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day that their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. What was God saying to the southern kingdom? I'm going to take you into Babylonian captivity. God, through the Babylonians, and Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, took God's people, the southern kingdom, into captivity. For 70 years, there were three waves of captivity. And ultimately, they stayed there for 70 years, and it was only through Cyrus, the king of Persia, that they were allowed then to return to their homeland and begin rebuilding the temple and, begin, and to begin setting up shop once again in the city of Jerusalem. But nonetheless, God destroyed the southern kingdom. Why? Because of sin because of their ungodliness, because of their wickedness. Now, why do I say all of that? The answer is, is simply this. When you look back at history, you see that God deals with nations. We've looked at Daniel chapter 4, verse 32, where Daniel said in the long ago, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomsoever he will." God has not just set up nations and allowed them to function on their own and, and to not hold them responsible to some degree. When it comes to our nation, when we look back at the past in history and we think about how God has dealt with other nations, I think the only conclusion that we can come to is that we are, as Brother Wayne Jackson observed in an article that I read earlier, we are on a collision course with history. What kind of collision course? Well, unless we get our act together, we've got some serious problems confronting us. Will God take us out? Will God destroy America as we know it? I do not know. I hope and pray not. But I know this. When we look back in history and we see how God has dealt with other people, and I would just cite for you 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter said, speaking of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God turned them into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to all, listen to him, that live ungodly. God is saying he holds us accountable. 
He holds cities accountable. He holds nations accountable. He held the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah accountable for their sins. He held the nation of Israel accountable for her sins. He held Judah responsible for her sins. He'll hold us as a nation of people responsible for how we live. Now, having said all of that, what then is the prescription? What is the remedy for our nation? Is it possible for us to somehow right the ship? What can we do? There are some things that I think you and I as children of God can do, and we ought to do. We need. We need to be involved in the affairs of our country. There are a lot of people that want to stick their head in the sand and act as if nothing is happening, nothing is going on. We may ignore the problem, but that does not make the problem go away. We have some very real problems in our nation, and we might as well deal with them. We talked about the problems as they, as they stand today, educationally. Some serious problems educationally, both secularly and spiritually. We've talked about the moral problems. The moral fiber of our nation has some real problems. And then we think about our, our judicial system, the problems that we're facing there, and then from an economic standpoint, some of the problems that, that, that we're facing. Tremendous problems. All right, what can we do? Number one, let me suggest unto you that we as God's people can proclaim the truth. I'm convinced that you and I have the remedy for the problems that are ailing our nation. What is the remedy? It is the Word of God. Let me read for you again a quotation that I read earlier from John Adams, our second president. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a paradise would this region be? We have the answer to the ills of our nation. What is the answer? It is the Bible. We sing the song, Give Me the Bible. God's Word has the power to change nations, to change the course of history. How do I know that? Because when people believe and obey the truth of God, well, go back and look at Jonah. Jonah went into the city of, of Nineveh, and he said, Repent, in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. What did they do? They repented. They turned to God, and God relented. God did not bring disaster upon the city of Nineveh. There is power in God's holy word. Let me also read for you this quotation taken from Benjamin Franklin. He said, We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. What is it our nation needs? Our nation needs, beginning with our political leaders, to understand that God's holy word is paramount in terms of the success or failure of our nation. If we take the word of God, implement it into our lives, we will prosper. We will be successful. If we turn a deaf ear to this word, if we say we're not interested in what God says, if we say we don't care what the Bible says, we are in grave trouble, serious trouble.
if you please. And so we need God's word. We must, as the people of God, proclaim this truth. How do I know that God's word will work? I cited just a moment ago the city of Nineveh. Look, if you would, at the book of Acts. Take, for example, in Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul went to the city of Athens. The Bible says that when he entered the city of Athens, his spirit was stirred within him because the whole city was given over to what? To idolatry. Here were people that were pluralistic. Here were individuals that were, that were bowing down to pagan gods, to pagan idols. We live in a nation today that is filled with pluralism. There are people today that no longer believe that the Bible is the only standard rule of conduct. There are people in our world today, particularly in America, that no longer believe Jesus Christ is the only way. When the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens, he didn't stop when he entered the city and say, wait a minute. These folks are living in idolatry. They're given over to idols. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to bypass this city and go somewhere else. He didn't do that. He did not wave those people off, but rather he went into the city of Athens and proclaimed to them the one true living God. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us, he stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious or superstitious. He talked about how they had a God with the inscription to the unknown. They had an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. He said, Him I declare to you, God that made the world and all things therein. What was Paul doing? He was declaring the one true living God to these people. In Acts chapter 18, we read about the Apostle Paul going to the city of Corinth. When you look at the city of Corinth, you see nothing short of a moral cesspool of evil. How do I know that Corinth was filled with immorality and ungodliness. All I have to do is read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor revilers, nor drunkards. And then he goes on to say, But such were some of you. When Paul went into the city of Corinth, do you think that when he arrived in the city of Corinth that he begged off? That he said, wait a minute. These people have sunken to the depths of ungodliness. They're not going to listen to this message. They're not going to be interested in New Testament Christianity. They're not going to be interested in changing their way of life. No, the Bible says that when Paul went to the city of Corinth, he did what? He preached to those people. He said, as a matter of fact, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for his sake. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8, the Bible says that many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and what? And were baptized. Why? Because they heard the word of God, they believed it, and they obeyed it. Now, sometimes we look around in our country today, and we wring our hands, and we wonder, what are we going to do? We talk about this cesspool of evil that surrounds us. And we talk about how bad things are. Listen, we have the remedy. We have the prescription for what ails America. It is the truth. It is the Word of God. What our, what our country needs tonight
is truth. Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. Truth can change the course of our nation. I want to ask you this question. What would our nation be like if every mother and father across this land, before going to bed tonight, opened this book and read from its contents? What would our homes be like if every mother and father sat down with their children and read from this book before turning in? What would this nation be like if every mother and father, husband and wife said, you know what? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What kind of changes would take place? Our nation tonight needs the truth of Almighty God. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Matthew 28, verse 19, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. We've got to teach people. We've got to preach to people. We've got to reach out to people with the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in the truth of God. I believe that what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is still true, that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. If it could change the hardest heart in the first century, it can do the job today. I believe that. Now, not only must we reach out to America, here's the hard part. We must reprove America. There are some people in our country tonight that need to hear what they're doing is wrong. I don't care who they are. I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care how much money they make. I don't care what office they, they hold, politically, secularly, whatever. There are some folks in our nation today that need to hear that what they are doing is wrong. It is wrong in the eyes of Jehovah God. You see, the problem in our nation is we have accepted a standard somewhat like those who lived during the days of, of the judges. When every man did that which was right in his own sight, the standard by which we live is not what I think, what I want, what I will, but rather it is what God in His Word dictates. The Word of God is ultimately what is going to judge the hearts and lives of Americans. And not just Americans, but the world. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We talk about some of the problems that are so prevalent in our nation today. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. There are some people in our nation today that need to hear that what they're doing will cost them their soul. God says there's a standard. What about reproving America? Well, I think it begins 
by telling people, listen, abortion, it's wrong. It is sinful. I don't know how I can make it any clearer. It is sinful. The Bible says God hates the hands of those who shed innocent blood. That's not what I said. That's not an interpretation of what I said. That is what God in his word has said. Now we talk about the moral ills of our country. I mentioned homosexuality. I am not insensitive to the lives of people. I feel for people who have been caught up in a way of life that is opposed to what God in his word has said. I feel for people who have gotten themselves knee deep in, in moral problems. The answer is not to encourage them to continue in a lifestyle that is in opposition to what God in his word has said, but rather the answer is to in a loving and kind way say, listen, you can't do that kind of stuff and God be pleased with you in this life. God expects better of you. God expects you to live in harmony with his word. We talk about greed and covetousness. Look at all of the problems that we're having economically in our country, the problems on Wall Street, the problems that that have been created by greedy individuals. In this nation, Jesus said, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. He would say, beware and take heed of covetousness. You see, there are some people in our country tonight that need to hear that they're living a greedy, covetous, idolatrous life in the sight of Almighty God. God's not pleased with that. And there are some people today, because of their greed and covetous ways, they are oppressing people. I would challenge you to go back and, and see how God views those who oppress the poor and take advantage of others so that they might fatten their wallet. God does not look favorably upon those people. So we need to reach out to America. We must reprove America. We must reason with America. When I say reasoning with America, I simply mean that we need to, we need to have dialogue with people. You can't convert your neighbor. You can't convert a friend, a family member, whomever. You can't convert somebody who's living a lifestyle that doesn't fit Scripture if you don't ever talk to them. Isaiah said, come now, let us reason together, sitting down and talking to people, reasoning with them out of the Scriptures, saying this is what God in His Word has said. This is what God has said He wants us to do evaluating what the Bible has to say. This is a standard. This is ultimately what will judge us. So reaching out to America. We talk about reproving America, reasoning with America. All of those things fall under the heading of proclaiming the truth. But then secondly, I would suggest we must practice the truth. One of the things that you and I need to do as God's people is practice truth in our own lives. Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth in Matthew 5, verse 13. We are the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. 
If this world is going to be changed, guess who has the responsibility of changing it? You do. I do. We have that responsibility. Now, let me say this. In looking at some of the statistics, in looking at some of the data that's before us in terms of where we are as a nation of people, I will freely admit it can be very discouraging. It can be, it can be downright negative. But here's something positive to think about. One person can make a difference. One person. You can make a difference. You might ask the question, how can I, one person, make a difference in this nation? Well, let me just cite for you Jonah. Jonah was one man. And Jonah rode into the city of Nineveh preaching a message of repentance. And because of that one godly man, guess what happened? A city averted disaster. You and I, we have, we have the ability to change the hearts and lives of people. We talk about we as God's people being the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Go back and read Genesis chapter 18. You remember when Abraham pleaded with Almighty God on behalf of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? God said for the sake of ten righteous people, he would do what? He would spare the cities. Ten righteous people. What does that say to me? It says that if we'll do what we can do, if we will act like God wants us to act, that maybe we can bring about some changes in this nation. Again, thinking about what Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. We as God's people, we can make a profound difference in this world. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul talked about how Timothy was to be an example of the believers in word, in conduct, in the way he conducted himself, in spirit, in faith, in love, in purity. You know what our world needs tonight? You know what America needs tonight? It needs to see young and old Christians walking the walk, saying, you know what, I'm a Christian. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the God of heaven. And I'm going to do my dead level best to live as he would have me to live. And I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm going to try to take as many people with me as I can. We need to live that way. We need to think that way. So what can we do? Proclaim the truth and practice the truth. Number two, what does our nation need to do? You ever thought about that? What does our nation need to do? Number one, I think our nation needs to rethink her course. As a nation of people, we need to ask, is this really where we want to go? Did you know that there are some today that are saying that we are now living in a post-Christian age? That this is a post-Christian nation? Is this where we want to go? Is this the direction that we as, as a nation of people want to go? Are we through with the Bible? Are we through with the God of heaven? Are we through with Jesus Christ? You see, there are some that would say, yes, we're through with them. We're done with that. But is that really the course that we want to take? So number one, we need to rethink our course. And number two, and here's the hard part. I believe that we need to repent and change as a nation of people. Listen, if you would, to what 
the writer of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 said, Now I understand that we are not as a nation of people, God's people. Israel of old was God's people. The true Israel today is the church. But we are a nation that has been profoundly blessed by a loving God in heaven. And so here's what is said in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We need some people like Jonah that have the courage, the, the conviction, the boldness to call on people in this nation to repent, to change their way of life. We as a nation we need to understand where we are. And I'm convinced it's time for us as a nation of people to admit our mistakes. Here's what Abraham Lincoln said, April 30th, 1863. Listen, if you would, to what he said. If you didn't know better, you would think he penned this yesterday. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. I think he was right on the mark. That's what we as a nation of people need to do. Let me close by saying this. Those who occupy positions of leadership in our country, whether it be our president, our vice president, members of Congress, Senate, state, local government, every person in a position of power needs to understand there is but one God who reigns, and that is the God of heaven and earth. He is sovereign. He put us in power. He can take us out of power. He's given us a book to live by. If we live by it, He'll bless us. He'll make our way prosperous. If we ignore it, if we turn from it, He'll curse us. He'll destroy us. And then thirdly, I would say, we need to repent. And those who are in positions of leadership, they would do well to understand that unless repentance is forthcoming, troublesome times are facing us. I am not a prophet, but I do speak what God in His Word has said. My desire is to simply preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
I do not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, and that is Almighty God. Am I concerned about the direction of our nation? You better believe it. Am I concerned about those who are occupying positions of authority in our country? You better believe it. And if I had the opportunity, I'd tell them that. To those who want to dishonor the name of God, who don't want to follow what the teaching of the Bible says, here's what we ought to do. Vote them out of office. You hear me? Vote them out of office. Pray for them. Plead with them. Encourage them to do what's right. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach unto any people. May God have mercy upon us as a nation of people. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, why not come to Christ? Why not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He sent His Son to die for your sins, and that through obedience to the gospel, every sin can be washed away? The Apostle Paul said that when Ananias approached him, he said, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you'll be baptized into Christ, God will add you to the church, Acts 2.47. You'll enjoy all spiritual blessings in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. If you'll live faithfully until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. If you're unfaithful, why not come home? Why not come tonight as we stand and sing?